thanks Joan and others for leading us. Isn't it? It's just such a, every time, isn't it, as we gather as God's church, it's such a blessing to come into his presence together, isn't it? Yeah, about four of you thought that. That's wonderful. That's good. I'm joking. It's great. I just want to highlight what Bernard said about um, First Tuesday. Uh, this coming Tuesday, where each First Tuesday when we gather for an hour for worship and prayer, we've had some kind of a theme that we're coming to pray for. And this week, it's going to be this month on healing. And when it's not going to be some... Uh, some big and weird and wacky healing surface, just to put that out there. It's going to be nice and gentle and nice and straightforward and easy. And, you know, healing takes all sorts of uh, different themes, you know, whether that's physical healing and God does heal on the spot, whether that's relational healing, whether that's healing in our land and lots of different things. So it's going to be nice and gentle. I just want to encourage you to gather as God's church to come and pray for healing, either for yourselves or for people that you know, or situations, or, or just to sit in his presence. But what an opportunity midweek to come and gather uh, in his name. I should have said good morning as well, shouldn't I? Good morning. If you don't know who I am, I'm Wayne, I'm uh, the church pastor here. And if you're watching online, it's great that you've gathered with us as well. I was, uh, Joan is right, we are carrying on with Nehemiah, and we are looking at Nehemiah 8. So you got that one good, so that's great. Um, I was born in 1971, which I know is a shock to many of you, because you think, God, he looks so young. How could he possibly have been born 52 years ago? But I was born in 1971, so I grew up with some amazing TV programs in the 1970s and the 1980s. You know, you had in no particular order, you had Buck Rogers in the 25th century, which was just outstanding television. You had Kojak... An amazing lollipop that he had. You had the A-team, how nobody ever died in that opening sequence, I don't quite know, but that was fantastic. You had the Duke of Hazards, you had Chips, and one of my all-time favourites, the Six Million Dollar Man. Yeah, Hands up if you remember the Six Million Dollar Man. Yeah, Hands up if you're too young and you have no idea. Yeah, put your hands, burn it, put your hand down. Dear me. Well, for those of you who are too young to remember, or too old to remember, I will introduce you and reintroduce you to the Six Million Dollar Man. The Six Million Dollar Man is an American science fiction document. no, it's not a documentary, um, an action television series running from around 1973 to 1978, about a former astronaut, USAF Colonel Steve Austin, portrayed by Lee Majors. After a NASA test flight accident, Austin is rebuilt with bionic implants, which give him superhuman strength, sight, speed. There is nothing that this man cannot do. And he's then employed by a secret agent as a secret agent by a fictional U.S. government office titled OSI. I don't know what they mean, but OSI. And it was pop culture in the 1970s. And like all of these TV programs, the opening sequence, you'd have some flashing images and pictures of how Steve Austin got to where he was, and there was some snare drum going on as well, building it up. And then you had the word spoken by somebody who's trying to be really, really serious. And he says, Steve Austin, astronaut. 
a man barely alive. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology, we have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man. Better than he was before. Better, stronger, faster. And then the music would start. And he'd be running. Wonderful TV as they rebuild Steve Austin. You don't get TV like that. Love Island's not like that, is it? You just don't, you just don't get that, you know? No offence, but Howie's not like that either. Great TV. You're thinking, what on earth has that got to do with Nehemiah chapter 8? Nothing. I just like the $6 million man. But the wall has been rebuilt in an amazing 52 days. And Nehemiah now moves in one sense, to the most important part of what Nehemiah was called to do. The wall is one thing, but Nehemiah now comes to rebuild the people. And the rebuilding of the people is arguably more important in one sense than rebuilding the wall. Because he's not using bionic technology. He's not using what was in the mid-1970s, far-fetched ideas, but actually in 2023, some of those ideas become a reality. But he's rebuilding the people. And the main and most important way in which he does that is he rebuilds them through the word of God. You see, the people had been in captivity. They'd been brought back from captivity. They'd been oppressed. They'd been taken advantage of from within their own people. They'd been despondent. They'd been wayward. They're in a period of huge readjustment. And Nehemiah realizes that rebuilding of the wall was only the beginning. And he now needed to rebuild the people. And he does this by seeing the word of God spoken, yes, out loud. But more than that, the word of God spoken into their very lives. So let us do the same and read some of chapter 8. And as we read it, I want to encourage you, if you're able, to stand. So let's just stand, if you're able, together. In October, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose. At the square just inside the water gate, they asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So on October the 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. To his right stood Mathathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Amasiah. To his left stood Padiah, Mishael, Malkajah, Hashem, Hashbadaniah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. When they saw him open the book, they all rose 
to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Masiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this. For today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah continued, go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites too quieted the people, telling them, hush, don't weep, for this is a sacred day. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal, to share gifts of food and to celebrate with great joy because they had heard God's word and understood them. Please have a seat. We're so blessed, aren't we, to have the Bible. So, so blessed. But here's the problem in one sense that that familiarity that that blessing does for us in the UK and the West. We truly mean that we're blessed to have the Bible. And I don't think there'd be anybody of us here or watching online that is is not blessed to have the Bible. But because we have so easy access to it, we can take it for granted. And this can sometimes stop us being rebuilt by the word of God. We don't realize how blessed we are to have a a copy of the Bible. We are so blessed that in most of our homes, there's more than one Bible. As I was preparing the sermon, I decided to, to, on my bookshelves and mentally in my head, count up how many Bibles we have in our house. I think I hit 20. And that doesn't include on my phone and my tablet and online with app websites like Bible Gateway and so on. It's wonderful that we can go online and not only see the Bible, but we can see many different translations to, to, to get the full flavor of what God is saying through his word. But in one sense, sometimes all that does is, I don't know, it causes a bit of Bible overload. We're so familiar with having the Bible that we can be in danger of fully accepting how precious the Bible is. Let me show you one of those Bibles I have at home. This is my pocket Bible. And um, I never knew this Bible existed till about two years ago. This is the Dulson Family Bible. And looking at the age of it, no, it hasn't started with me, just saying that. This goes back to about 1845 in my family. 
And I, my, my nan never spoke about this Bible. I never knew that this was in the family. My dad never spoke about this Bible. And I never knew it existed. My nan died some three years after my dad. And I can only assume that she gave that to my dad's brother, my uncle, my uncle Den. And he died two years ago, and I did his funeral. And while I was chatting to my cousins, my cousin Keith said, uh, Dad thought, where can I now put the family Bible? He looked at his two sons, and he said, do you want to give it to Wayne? And uh, he he thought, well, it's probably good to give it to a minister. That's a good person to have the family Bible. In Bizarrely, I thought, well, actually, it's probably a good place for them to have it, so they might read it a little bit. But anyway, this is it's a precious Bible to us. You can see it's a little bit torn and tattered, because it has been around since 1845. I need to take it on the repair shop, really, don't I, and get it all up to scratch. But this is really precious to us as a family. And there will become a day where, where I hand it down to one of my children, and I know Kezia's watching on screen, so maybe I'll give it to Kezia, because Reuben won't know, because he can't see what I'm saying. So, <laughs> Kezia, our secret, okay? So I'm just saying. More important than that preciousness of that family Bible is what's in it. The pages. The words that are written. It contains all we ever know. All we ever need to know God. How to live. This is in, this the inspired word of God. We read in 2 Timothy 3.16, there's nothing like the written word of God for showing you the way to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every part of scripture is God-breathed and useful for one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the word, we are put together and shaped up for the task that God has for us. Through the word, we're put together, we're shaped up for everything that God's got for us. It's all in there, it's all in the word of God. The Bible is is life. And yet Eric Mason, who wrote a study on Nehemiah that some of us are using as we walk through this book, says, even though we have more access to the Bible in Western context than you can ever imagine, Translations, transmissions, seminaries, churches, preachers. I believe there's still a biblical famine. There is a sense in which people trust everything else except the scriptures. He goes on to say how he doesn't like the phrase, the Bible is the final authority on all things. Because it suggests that you've tried everything else first and then you come to the Bible as the final thing. And friends, in truth, you can see there's a biblical famine. As people are changing their interpretation of the Bible to fit the culture in which they're living in. And when I say people are doing this, I mean the church is doing this. There are cultural aspects to life that only 20 years ago, the church would have spoken God's truths into. And yet here we are in 2023, and many churches are trying to make the Bible agree with the culture as opposed to the other way around. And I believe if the Bible is the word of God, it means it's the word of God, period, full stop. It cannot be changed. Even the bits we don't like or agree with, or the bits that we don't want to hear. After all, we read in Romans 12 that we're not to conform to the patterns of the world around us. 
or as another translation puts it, don't fit into your culture without ever thinking. We have biblical famine. It's not just that we go to God's words last instead of first, but we have biblical famine because we don't have that, that hunger for the true word of God. We, we take it for granted that we can have a Bible and more than one at that, and so we can be in danger of not being that concerned with what the word of God actually says. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, we see people with a hunger for the word of God. You've got Ezra, the scribe, who we we read elsewhere in scriptures, uh, that the word of God is so important to him that he set his heart, everything that he is, he set it on the word of God. That's how Ezra lived his life. He loved the word of God. He studied it. He taught it. He believed it. And before any of his teaching, any of his understanding, he allowed his heart to be moved by the word of God and everything else followed on from that. So Ezra is asked to to bring out the law and and read it to everybody. To to, to read it out. If you read the scripture, if you read them out, it's almost like a procession. They, They come out with, you know, They weren't little Bibles like this, or even like my family Bible. These are big scrolls, and people would have carried it with him. And it was so important to them, they'd built a platform. I think we call it a pulpit in today's world. Not because they wanted to elevate Ezra, not just because everybody could then see him and hear him, because they wanted to elevate the word of God. So Ezra stands on this platform and he he opens the scrolls and he reads the law of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And they and the people too are listening to it. They too are setting their heart on God's word. And when we set our heart on God's word, it changes everything about us. That's how Nehemiah was building up the people. By enabling them to set their heart on the word of God. And we read in in chapter 8 that all the men and women and all the children old enough to understand came to listen to Ezra reading from God's word. Can we just not dumb down the gospel to our children? Can we just not think, well, they can't understand until they're 24? They can understand. You know, let's not dumb it down to them. And I love it that when Ezra opened the word of God. Everyone stood. How did you, I wonder how you felt. It's a rhetorical question. I wonder how you felt when I said, let's stand as we read the word of God. I wonder if you felt, well, we stood for a bit too long. They stood because they hungered for God's word so much that they stood in awe of the word of God, for they stood in awe of God. And I don't know if you caught it, but they stood from early morning till noon. We're talking of a minimum of five hours. We stood for about three minutes. They stood for five hours because they were so hungry to hear the word of God, to stand in awe, to stand in in, in reverence, in the presence of the living God. They stood for five hours hearing the word of God uh, spoken out, being explained and all of that kind of stuff. It speaks powerfully of a hunger for God. You know, we'll stand in line 
to get tickets for something. We'll stand in line to, to wait for something. But we don't like giving all this time in church to God. Because they stood for five hours. We, we get a bit uneasy when the service goes on a little bit too close to lunchtime. I have to be honest with you. I, I find it really strange when people complain that the service lasts for more than an hour and 15 minutes. After all, gathering together, let's not give up meeting together, the Bible tells us. This is central to what it means to be God's church. We can give hours and hours to to a theatre, to a film, to catching up with friends, to reading a book, doing a jigsaw, loads of others are good stuff. Nothing wrong with that, unless jigsaws, colourblind jigsaws don't mix. But anyway, my mother would give hours to a jigsaw. But when it comes to gathering as the church of God, anything more than 75 minutes and we start to get a bit grumbly. I remember someone saying to me many years ago, I was a minister, and they said, um, they will not be in church on a Sunday. Sorry, let me rephrase that. She said, I can't be in church when the family are coming over because I've got to prepare lunch and we like to eat it at one o'clock. And so I just said to her, well, could you have lunch at another time, a little bit later? It did not go down too well. She was not amused. Somebody else said to me, if you notice, I leave the service. If you go on past half past 11, I need to leave because I got a taxi booked at half past 11. Again, I said, have you not considered changing the time of your taxi? You would have thought I'd sworn at her. Because that's the mentality that we have in the UK and the West. Granted, it's a broad generalisation, sweeping statement. But what I'm getting at, friends, is that we don't have this hunger. You know, that, that, okay, it might go a bit too, you might have to change your lunch plans for pushing back half an hour. Do you know what? The sky will not fall in. We have a biblical famine because in truth we do not have a hunger for God's word like they had in this passage. And therefore a hunger for God. We have a hunger for other things in the world, and I'm including myself in these statements. What we see in Nehemiah chapter 8, as Ezra reads to the people, we see through their hunger for the word of God that they've been reminded of God's faithfulness to them. We've sung of God's faithfulness today. Reminded of how amazing, how wonderful, how awesome God is, how faithful he is. If you read on to the rest of the chapter, they talk about the Feast of, of Booths, when, where they were reminded, Moses gave this... Uh, stipulation to them, this law, if you like, to, to have seven days where you gather in tents to remind you how, how faithful God had been as you traveled through the wilderness as your ancestors did. And so people are standing. And then as they're thinking of God's faithfulness, they're, they're realizing how they have wronged a faithful God. And so they start to cry. Isn't it wonderful? They're hearing the word of God being read. And they stand. And are so moved to emotion that they start weeping because of the word of God. People are to tears. People not to weep, but to celebrate. Why? Why should they not weep if they've been reminded of all the wrongs that they have done to a faithful God? Well, because while God's, God's word convicts us of our sin, God doesn't want us to stay there. He wants to rebuild us. 
Nehemiah wants the people to see the joy of God through the word. He doesn't want them to get their strength through uh, fears of re- re- tears of regret or, or, or all of those kind of things, but through the, the joy of God. That's why he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. He says it's a time of celebration. It's a bit like, you know, they're saying, come on guys, this is supposed to be a party. Why, why, why the long faces? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And the joy of the Lord means to be satisfied in God. That everything in our lives, we're satisfied because of God. You don't need to search for satisfaction anywhere else. For you will find it in God and God alone. And the people celebrated. Because they were satisfied in God in a way that nothing else in the world, none of their wrongdoing could ever satisfy them in the way that God did. That's why the joy of the Lord, the satisfaction of the Lord is their strength. Nehemiah is is basically saying that through God's word, living in you, through living with God, through accepting what's in his word and putting it into your life, you will experience everything you need in life, the, the fullness of life, and you will find deep satisfaction. You know, I think we and people around us can search in other places for satisfaction in life. No, I'm not going to sing the song, don't worry, but you're singing it in your head, and if you're not, now it's in there for the rest of the day, isn't it? But we search for it in our careers, our families, our achievements, our accolades, our social life. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but they will not give us the satisfaction in life that we will find through God's word, because through God's word, we find him. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the people of God recognize the importance and the power of God's word. They, They place a high value on it, so they stand. I love it. Don't worry, I'm not considering that next Sunday we stand. Oh no, it's Kids' Kingdom. The Sunday after, we just come and stand for five hours and read scripture. Don't worry. But just that, nothing else is important. Because when those people gathered, they didn't gather expecting that they would be there for five hours. They may have had other plans, but it didn't matter. Because what mattered was being in God's presence. And so they stand and they're they're moved. Friends, it's a question I'm asking myself. Do we hunger for God's word that way? Do we hunger for God's word in the same way that we hunger for a Netflix box set? (laughs) Or the next series is coming out? Or I've got this happening this weekend. Or I've got a holiday. I'm not saying don't enjoy those things. I enjoy them as much as the next person. But do we hunger for them more than we hunger for God's word? Friends, it's a question I'm asking myself. You know, if you look through this chapter 8, the people have had an intellectual response to God's word. They were taught. Then they had a passionate response to God's word. They were moved to tears and they worshipped God. And now they, they, they need to allow it to penetrate their hearts as they truly live it out. So, so why does hungering for God's word rebuild us? Well, in, in the same way that if you're physically hungry, what happens if you go without food? You will die. Simple. No, not if you skip a meal. <laughs> 
you go without food for weeks and weeks on end, you, you will die. We hunger for God's word because if we don't eat God's word, spiritually, we will die. Make no, no bones about that. You know, if you think that your spiritual life is stagnated, if it's not growing, if you, you're not sure, genuinely ask yourself, how much of God's word are you reading? Because if we're not ingesting it into ourselves, spiritually, we will die. Because it is life. That's what God's word is. Why do we hunger? Maybe you've, you've seen this book, The Heavenly Man, by Brother Young. I want to tell you, as we come to a close, I want to tell you, see, I told you it wouldn't be five hours, didn't I? I want to tell you a, a story in... It's only in chapter 2 of the book, and it's called A Hunger Fulfilled. See, Brother Yan lived in China. He was born in 1958. He lived in communist China, where all missionaries were thrown out. Uh, Pastors and preachers were beaten, put in prison camps, and maybe executed. And it was not a great time uh, to be a Christian. And and, and scripture was was banned. It It was outlawed. If you were found with... With a Bible, you could be killed. You could be thrown in prison. You could be beaten. And, and it was not a good thing to have the book of the Word of God. And I find it interesting that that, that happens. Because it means that the powers that be realize there's so much power in this book. You know? And so Brother Yan, he, he wanted, uh, he wanted to, to have a Bible. He became a, a Christian because he felt God called him. To, to follow him when he was only 16 years of age. But he never had a Bible. He'd never seen a Bible. And so he decided that he would pray to God for a Bible. And as a family, they knew that there was somebody in a neighbouring village, quite a walk away, that this old man, he, he had a Bible. And they decided, well, maybe we'll walk to that village and we'll see this guy and we'll ask him if we can have a look at his Bible. And so he went with his mum as a young boy, and he went to uh, ask this man, and they found his house, and they, they knocked on the door, and they said, could, we understand you have a Bible. Could, could we see your Bible, please? And the man was, was, was understandably a little bit concerned, fearful that this could be a bit of a trick. So he says to him, look, look, if you want a Bible, young man, you need to go home, and you need to pray that God will give you this Bible. And so that's what Brother Young did. He, he went home, and he prayed to God. And I love the fact that he, he didn't just pray. He, he put a pebble under his knee and he knelt down. So he was made uncomfortable realizing why he was praying. And so he prays to God for this Bible. And he might have prayed for a month or so. And after that, he, he still didn't have a Bible. God hadn't miraculously given him this Bible. And so on his own, without his parents this time, he went back to this guy and he said, can I, can I have just... Just a, a smidgen, just, a, just a, a glimpse of your Bible. Can I just have a look at it? And maybe I could write down some words from it so I could take it home and I could read that. And, and the old guy said to him, no, you, you can't, but if you really want a Bible, why don't you not just pray harder, but why don't you um, fast? Fast and, and weep for this Bible. And so that's what Brother Young did. And he went home and he started 
to weep and cry and he, he was asking God to give him this Bible and he fasted so much that all he ate was rice every 24 hours. That's all he ate was a, a small bowl of rice every 24 hours. And then he started to have visions. And he had this vision of these two people turning up at his door and giving him this Bible. And the vision was that he, he was going somewhere to get some bread and he had a, a, a cart with him and he was very poor and he's begging for bread. And so he goes, he drags his cart along and he's begging for bread and coming towards him are, are, two, are two people with a cart laden with bread, freshly baked bread. It's lovely, isn't it? Freshly baked bread when, it, when, it, when it's just, oh, so warm. And they said to Brother Ian, do you want some bread? He said, I'd, I'd love some bread. And they said, well, okay, well, use some bread, but you can't take it back to your family. Not just yet. You need to eat that bread. And as he put the bread in his mouth, it turned into a Bible. He was literally eating the word of God. He woke up. It was so vividly powerful, he felt it was real. He searched the house, high and low. He's looking in every cupboard, looking under the seats, going everywhere, looking for this Bible. And at that moment, there was a faint knock on the door. And he opened the door. He recognized the people. And he said, have you got the bread for me? And they said, yes. Let me just read from his own words as we finish. Suddenly I heard a faint knock at the door. A very gentle voice called my name. I rushed over and asked through the locked door, are you bringing the bread to me? The gentle voice replied, yes, we have bread. We have a bread feast to give you. I immediately recognized the voice as the same one I'd heard in my vision. I quickly opened the door and there standing before me were the same two servants I'd seen in the vision. One man held a red bag in his hand. My heart raced as I opened the bag and held in my hands my very own Bible. The two men quickly departed into the still darkness. I clutched my new Bible to my heart and fell down on my knees outside the door. I thanked God again and again. I promised Jesus that from that moment on, I would devour his word like a hungry child. He didn't have the word of God, but he hungered after it so much that he devoured it like a hungry child. Wow. What a hunger for God's word that we can so easily take for granted because we can get as many Bibles as we need. We need to let the word of God dwell in our hearts and our lives. We do this by reading it slowly and allowing it to to seep into us. We read in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. In the message paraphrase, this verse is translated this way. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find your everyday human concerns will be met. Friends, you may have noticed that I've made a pot of tea as I was talking to you. And the observant noticed that I made the pot of tea and I've let it steep. You see, to steep means that you allow the water to extract the flavour of the tea. 
You're also allowing the tea to soak in the water so that it marinades the water, it infiltrates it. Or to put it another way, the tea influences the water. Nehemiah wanted to rebuild the people by, by them allowing the word of God to flavor them to marinate them with the ways of God, to pour upon and into them God's flavor, to infiltrate every aspect of their lives, to influence how they live. That's what happens through reading God's word. It seeks to rebuild us as it influences us. And the longer you leave it, the more you read it, the more it will influence you, the more it will flavor your life. Just like the tea does with the water and eventually it will turn into a completely new drink that refreshes you deep within your life friends how is life for you Are you hungering after God's word? Are you devouring it? And in the process, are you allowing God's word to change you? To influence you? To receive satisfaction in life that comes from him and not from the world around you? On Tuesday, as we gather here for worship and prayer, we'll pray for healing, not because we think it's a great thing to do, but because in God's word there is healing. As we read it and God teaches us that he heals. So let's do what God's word tells us to do. We can be healed. We can see the miracles that Brother Young experienced. If we would come with just laying ourselves before God. Not worrying what will happen but letting him do whatever he chooses to do. And so like the people, Nehemiah was leading. Will we allow God's word to rebuild us? And allow the word to influence us, as opposed to us trying to influence the word. Let's pray together. Father, we just, we are so blessed. We thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is life in all its fullness. Father, help us to have a hunger for it. And over time, allow it to change us more and more as we, through your word, get to know you more and more. So we will know your goodness, your faithfulness, your mercy, your compassion as our lives are changed. Bless you, Lord. Amen.